All right, everyone. There was a question that I, I remembered. Was it you, Saranya? Somebody asked me a question at the end of the last class. Yes, but I wanted you to ask it in the class because I think it, do you remember what it was? I have a vague recollection of it. To pass it back. Microphone. If you ask a question in order for it to be on the recording, you have to speak into the mic. The question was about um, in karma, you say that everything has to come to zero. Right. That was one of the questions, I think. And how does that work no, that with if that it's was joy? That was, that, that was another one. Oh, it was the difference okay. between detachment and passivity and thinking that, okay, I think that was the question. It was talking about if things are going well, how do you, how do you relate to that? Do you have to be suffering in order to be detached? I think that was the essence of the question. Does that make more sense? Okay, because I talk so much about um, understanding because of the, the subject. Now we come to the practice of yoga, although he translates it slightly differently which is all based on the fact of the Shankya philosophy, which explains to us why it is that life as it is presented to us in the most obvious way is not ever really going to give us what we're hoping that it's going to give us. And how subtle and complicated that idea is and how um, vigilant we have to be, how fundamental it is to our spiritual path. That's why it's the first aphorism of Patanjali. I wanted to also just add a thought, which I'm going to start talking about when we start talking about the second sutra to tonight. Patanjali is not for sissies, okay? <laughs> this is really not a, oh, dear little devotee, you know, everything's just going to be all right, you're just going to be able to kind of be comfortable and have a nice time and then call yourself really spiritual. And Patanjali just cuts through everything. And you have to have a sense, and this is where I didn't talk about Vedanta very much because Swami really talks much more about Shankya. But Vedanta is the description of the, of the unified nature of reality and our ultimate experience of that unified reality, which is Satchitananda, which is bliss. I didn't talk about that a lot. But you see, all of them have to go together. Because it isn't as if we're just repudiating the world and accepting this sort of tragic realization that nothing will ever fulfill us. And then therefore, I guess I better practice yoga. <laughs> you know, Vedanta is, is integral because we have this image, we have this vision of Satchitananda, ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss, which is, in fact, the fulfillment that we have translated down and identified with all these um, surface waves of life so that when we actually dive below the surface, which is the way to think about it, it's not that we repudiate the waves on the surface, it's that we dive below the surface and we live from the, the full depth of the ocean and then the waves are still happening but we see them in context. And that, that context is Vedanta. So it isn't, you know, the, the great misunderstanding of the spiritual path, and especially of the way Patanjali expresses it, is that we're suffering. And that even if we're brave in our suffering, 
the thought form, whether conscious or subconscious, is that we're suffering. Whereas Shankya really teaches us that it's to live on the surface, on the never-ending up and down waves and cling to the up waves or dread the, the down waves, that that's what real suffering is, not the effort required, and this is what we're going to talk about today, to extricate ourselves from our preoccupation with the waves in order to dive deep into the ocean. But that's where Vedanta comes into it. So I don't clearly have a picture in my mind still of exactly what, it, what the point was that Saranya brought up to me, but I know when she brought it up to me it was very important, so I'm going to sort of try to find where it is. It, it's related to this. It's this idea that uh, it's, it's, the, it's the commitment, and I think, I, in fact, I actually have said the essence of it, that somehow... Um, let, me, let me just find it for just a second. I think it had to do with what real detachment is. Detachment is not repudiating. I mean, to, to be averse is really the same as to being attached. I mean, to be averse is, this, is just the opposite side of being um, attracted. It's, it's making distinctions that this one is good and this one is not good, and that's what binds us, likes and dislikes. Detachment is just the freedom to let things come as they will and go as they will, but it's not a, a diminution of feeling or a cutting off of the heart. Sometimes people think that detachment means um, to deaden our feelings, and therefore, and if things are good, then we shouldn't really enjoy them, we shouldn't have you know, the pleasure and the little petty enthusiasms that life brings us. It's not, it's not that. It's merely to live from the bottom of the ocean so that when the waves go up and the waves go down, we just, we can ride the waves. And when the waves are going up and we're, you know, with wonderful friends enjoying a beautiful experience, we're with wonderful friends enjoying a beautiful experience. If we've raised children and we're very gratified to see them, you know, marching off into the world and Um, making a success of their lives. We're very gratified to see that. It would be... um, Spirituality is not to become inhuman. It's to become, in fact, completely free to enjoy that completely because we're not dependent upon it. We don't have the the same fear of losing it. You see, it's it's that intuitive awareness that even when the waves go up, they're inevitably going to go down it makes us so anxious. Um, but if we just simply know that, um, Saranya was saying to me, you know, she, she and her husband were talking about the fact that everything's going really well. You know, the kids are doing great. You know, health is good. Everything is, there's, all the family crises are all over. And you know, everything is just kind of comfortable at the moment. It would be rude not to uh, be grateful for that. But at the same time, then, when the trials come, if we have made our happiness, we have allowed that upward-moving wave to pull us off-center, then, of course, as soon as it begins to swing the other way, then we're going to plunge with it. If we, The picture that I usually draw is the trunk of the tree reaching out to its branches. Um, if, we, if we identify and live and draw our strength from the trunk of the tree, every aspect of the branch is also part of our reality. We have to extend ourselves as far as our growth and our involvement takes us, but it's a question of whether we make our happiness the farthest leaf 
or whether we are always identified with the trunk of the tree. And then even if a big branch is cut off, we may observe that. We may even weep for the loss of something that was potentially beautiful, but it doesn't profoundly affect our sense of where our true happiness comes from. That's what the Shankya philosophy tells us, which is why we come to the practice of yoga where we try to make our consciousness deeper. And the effort to make our consciousness deeper is no small effort. And that's why we have to be highly motivated to do it. And it's not, an, it's not emotional, it's not a big sort of hoo-ha all the time. It's just a, a calm and simple, intuitive understanding. I, I spent enough time on it last week, I don't have to go into it again. But we also have to be very serious, and I did say this, so I won't emphasize it too strongly again, just to recognize this is a big, this is a big job. You know, to declare ourselves detached is... Uh, for the most part, presumptuous. We should be very, very humble because the more strongly we assert um, a reality that isn't um, through and through, the more we set ourselves up for correction. It's, it's just better to be, it's better to be a little humble about these things. You certainly see that in the way Swamiji has lived. You know, he's, um, he doesn't hesitate to say what he feels and to be who he is. But he he doesn't claim a reality. More recently, he's claimed it more. But for most of his life, he was always very, very respectful of the possibility of being wrong and the possibility of delusion. You're not safe until you're in Nirbhakalpa Samadhi. And if you don't know if you are or not, you're not. (laughs) And until then, better safe than sorry. I don't know how clearly that covered what we talked about last week. All that you said covered it perfectly. Is this on? But, um, but then I need to relate that to when you talk about um, karma and all of the good having to come and the bad having to equal out to zero. Those two things relate. What you've just said about um, living deeply within your center and not being um, torn off, pulled off of your center. How does that relate to everything coming to zero. Well, the waves go up and down, but if you live in the depth of the ocean, it really doesn't make any difference whether the wave... You know, see, the whole thought form... Hold the microphone until we're finished in case you have to speak again. Um, The whole thought form of it coming to zero is based on the attachment to things being one way or another. So by the time it comes to zero, we're in a different reality about it. I mean, it's, it's very hard for us not to equate ease and pleasure with good. See, because that's all we're really talking about. The, it, when we talked about it last week, you know, power, money, sexual enjoyment, um, the concomitant things that go with it, fame, um, emotional satisfaction, all those factors, we, we think of those things as being so satisfying. But you see, there comes a point on the spiritual path where we don't think of those as good anymore. So by the time we don't have them, they no longer are attractive to us either. Um, what, what he's trying to say with the zero is, you know, you, you, we get our certain circumstances and we think we've got it just right, but change is inevitable. And so whatever you're standing in now is, to, is going to slip away from you. If, 
if by nothing else, by death and old age, or by the, dis the inability to control the world around you. So the, the real concern about it all coming back to zero is not for the devotee, because by the time the devotee is, is deeply looking for God-realization, the ups and downs of life are, just don't have the same power to define our reality as they do for a person who is not looking for that kind of truth. And the reason we keep emphasizing that is all that we were talking about last week because the mind is restless and it, it doesn't remember that everything was fine yesterday and it's only bad today. Or everything is good today, but then it, you know, it's going to shift tomorrow. I remember saying to my mother once, asking her just about her own life, you know, what did she enjoy the most? Oh, when the children were small. You know, and it wasn't that she was miserable the rest of the time, but she particularly enjoyed when the children were small. And you could sort of see that, you know, she liked being a mom and she liked little children and we just didn't give her any grandkids until really late in her life and just gave her one. And uh, she just never, she had that, but you could see the wistfulness in it. So it's not always that it's just tragic, it's just that the nicest period of time doesn't last that long. When I asked Swamiji once about karma and what draws us back into reincarnation, he gave me a, a very profound answer. He said that um, longing, longing, and regret, those are the, the elements that create the karmic bondage that causes you to have to reincarnate again. Longing and regret. It's, a ver it's very profound when you think about it because... You know, you'll go down the street and you'll see some home that looks really attractive and you see people looking, they look like they're happy in that house and you have this longing for that. You see a happy couple and you're an unhappy divorced person and you think, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I had a partner like that? You see a beautiful woman who has very slim hips and you think, wouldn't that be nice if I didn't always have to worry about my, my tummy? I mean... All those thoughts cross our minds, don't they? Wouldn't it be nice to have natural curly hair or not to have natural curly hair? You know, you, we have these, these longings. You know, maybe we never had a baby and always wanted to have a baby. And you see people with babies and this intense longing comes over you. Or if only I had stayed with the playing of the piano, if only when I had that opportunity I had invested that money if only when I was given that job I wasn't too young to appreciate what an opportunity it was. All of those regrets. And that's, that's, what, that's the up, up and down waves. That you know we had something but we didn't have everything. We didn't have this but we want it there. That's the, the final realization that all of that comes back to zero. Comes back to zero in, oh, my mother had three children but then they all just went away. And as my dad said, all the children just disappear into the adult. You know, and unless you have every, all your kids hanging around making more little babies, then there you are just longing for that to come back again. And you, that's the zero that it comes to. They're there for a while and then they're not. Oh, I wished I had done it properly. Oh, I'll have another chance to make it right. You know, oh, but it didn't quite fulfill. And then, but then we just realized that that's the Shankya. It's not that it's terrible. That's what I wanted to say. It's not that these things, the good things, are terrible. 
It's that they're not perfectly fulfilling. And that's the key point. That was the point I was looking for. It's, it's not like human love is awful. It's not like being successful is awful, raising children, being a great artist. None of that is awful. In fact, much of it is really just exquisite when you experience it. But the heart is still not satisfied. And that's the real point of Shankya. The real point of Shankya isn't, oh, you're going to suffer. No, no, no. It's that even when all your desires are fulfilled, you still don't feel fulfilled. Until you, the heart, our heart, we were made for thee alone, and our hearts are restless till we find our rest in thee. That's what St. Augustine said. And as Swamiji put it once, which is beautiful, he said, we learn from being disappointed, but we learn more from being fulfilled. Because if we're disappointed, we can still imagine that if it only came together in the way I want, then I would be perfectly happy. But then when it does come together in just the way you want, that's when you really find out, oh, but it's still not enough. And that's when you know. And that's, that's the point at which you really, really know. So misery teaches us, but actually fulfillment teaches us more. If you really think about it, you realize that's true. Misery just leaves you longing. But fulfillment leaves you unsatisfied and really ready to think there's got to be something more than this. Okay? That was the point. Now we found it. Now I can go on. Any other questions? Did you have a question to start with? Was there anything else? And that's why, when you ask me that, Saranya, about things going nicely, can you, you know, do you have to repudiate them? No, no, drink the cup to the bottom so that you'll know precisely how much lasting bliss there is in it, which is not nothing. No, which is not nothing. That's, that's an important point. Otherwise, you know, you're just always calling life ugly when it isn't. You see the distinction? It's an extremely vitally important distinction. It's just not God-realization. Yes. So Asha, so you're saying it's better to, if you have a desire, just get over it? <laughs> well, Master says, desire is constantly gratified, never satisfied. So it has to be a sensible balance. But when, when someone, for example, I was asked in a satsang, a single uh, woman who deeply longs to have a love relationship said, how can I realize that divine, that human love is just a distraction and divine love is really the only fulfillment. I said, you'll never believe that. Don't even try. <laughs> you know, it was just a, a theory. I don't, just don't, that's just not the way to think. Think instead, Divine Mother, what, whatever you send me, I accept as gratefully as I'm able to. But sincerely and deeply, I have this desire. So help me. You know, to sort of say, because I read in a book, that, you know, it's not really going to fulfill me, it's just a distraction. It's, don't bother. Be sincere. Um, And by that same token, it's not necessarily better to be, I mean, to be passive um, about those things you feel compelled towards. Sometimes it's better to just simply go forward with God to achieve because it's in you to do and the desire... The attempt to fulfill that desire will teach you about it, whereas the mere 
suppression of it. Transcendence is different than suppression. Transcendence is um, knowing, really knowing in your heart that you really don't want it, but being tempted a little bit. You know, like a person, a, 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 a young brahmachari or a young um, renunciate woman may just really know that there's just nothing in family life for them. It just really isn't their path. But from time to time, a thought crosses the mind, wouldn't it be nice? Or a strong thought crosses the mind, wouldn't it be nice? But, but it, there's, there's a, another level of knowing that this is something I really don't want to do even if sometimes I'm tempted toward it. And that's quite different than, oh, you know, teach me not to want that which I want with my whole heart, mind, and soul. It's just not even the right battle. Of course, God may still deny your desires. It's folly to think merely because we want something that we're going to get it. So we, we may still have a battle to face in accepting God's will. But at least we can be sincere and know what the right battle is that this is a longing of my heart, Lord, and this is going to be a struggle. You know, when I was living in the early years at, of Ananda as a renunciate, there was, you know, there was, it was a, we, we were learning about that path, and there were, there were some of us who just really knew that the family life was not for us. And it wasn't, it wasn't a, an intellectual decision based on reading that we ought to feel this way. And if we're serious about the spiritual path, this is what we ought to do. There was none of that. There was just a, an inner knowing that this is really the direction I should go. This is right for me. I mean, some of us, like myself, I mean, I lived there for a decade, and then I ended up getting married as it happened. But my younger intention had been marriage and a family and a home and you know all these different things. And I really knew that wasn't for me. I took a little bit, little piece of it. I took a partner, and we, you know, have worked together for the... It was sort of a renunciate marriage. It was somewhere in the middle. But, you know, during all those years, there were, I was tempted from time to time, but I always could feel where my, where my dharma was. You see the difference? Yeah. It's not the same as just being really hungry for something. If you're really hungry for something, chances are pretty good you're going to have to live through it. And you might as well just shrug your shoulders and just say, Okay. You know, let me just try to do this in as centered and as divinely inspired a way as possible. But, you know, life disappoints us more than it fulfills us. So merely, as I say, because we want something doesn't mean in any way we're going to get it. <laughs> but we will eventually. Yeah. Okay, any other questions? All right. The second sutra, I mean, the... Sutra number one and sutra number two are the ones that we really know a lot about. Yoga is the neutralization of the vortices of feeling. And this is yoga, chitta, vritti, nirod. Yoga is, chitta means feeling, he describes it. Vritti means vortex. Nirod means calming and neutralizing. Yoga is chitta, vritti, nirod. Now, yoga, the union of the divine with, the, with our, our union with the divine, integration on all levels. This is the, the definition of what yoga actually is. And this, um, this is one of the most famous of all of Patanjali's sutras because it really describes everything. So Swamiji says in here um, that he uses the example of an ocean wave. And he said many people translate the word vritti as a wave. 
waves of feeling. But he said, up and down, this is a very subtle point, up and down, as he said, doesn't really describe um, the way, the, as he puts it, the ego relates to duality. Um, and so he, the, the word vritti is actually a different word, and I just put the whiteboard up here just for this one picture, just so we see it, because it's, it's, really, it's really sort of important to understand. Let me just think about this for a second. When he's saying that that wave doesn't really describe how the ego relates to duality, what he's trying to say is it's not like we grab for the height and then we plunge into the depths and then we grab for the height and we plunge into the depths. Often our lives are not nearly that dramatic, among other things. And that's where the word vritti is also more about what it's like, is that we, be, we develop a fixed idea of something that he puts it, he lists the words out. Let me see what he says. I want, I like, I need, I reject. I want, I like, I need, I reject. These are the, the longings and the repudiations of the heart. So I'm just going to write it there. I want, I like, I need, I reject. That's how Swami describes it. So the, the I, which is I ego equals ego equals the infinite self, which is our little self, identified. I'm going to use the word with the finite. He actually says the ego is the infinite self identified with the material, with the body, not just the material body, but the astral body and the causal body as well as the physical body. Okay, ego is the infinite self, and that's us. That's our little spark of divinity. The word jiva is a really good word. Jiva is our unique individual expression of spirit. It's the it's the bubble of consciousness. The jiva identifies with the body that it's inhabiting. And this physical body is a manifestation of the astral body. There's an astral ego, there's a causal, causal ego. Merely to shed the physical body is not the same as to shed the ego because we are equally identified with the, with the astral form, which is where the chakras and the karma are stored. And then that identification with the astral form is where the material body comes from. So death doesn't do anything for your spiritual development at all. It just, because you're still the ego, you've just identified with the, when the physical body dies, hopefully you'll let it go, but you'll identify with the energy pattern that you have developed through this life experience, which is your chakras. So that ego self is the I that we're referring to here. I mean, the word I... Um, refers to us as an individual, so it depends on what that pronoun means to us. The whole understanding of the Bible is clarified when we understand that when Jesus said, I, there was no infinite identified with the finite. There was only infinite identified with the infinite. So when he said, I, he meant all of creation. He meant infinite consciousness. 
He did not mean I, the infinite, inhabiting the body of Jesus. He had an individuality. He moved the body, but he wasn't identified with it. Okay? So once we have an ego, an I, that is identified with that which is finite, all of a sudden, we want certain things, we like certain things, we reject certain things, we need certain things. Let me start just from the simple fact that we need to eat and to sleep, and we are, imp- we are impelled by bodily imperatives. You know, Jesus could fast for 40 days. There are many examples of saints, Therese Nuhiman, and others who don't even need to eat, who are not compelled by bodily imperatives, advanced souls whose inclination towards sexuality is just zero. Swami talked about some saint he met, a man who had you know, become a renunciate when he was just a small boy, and he said his genitals never developed. He never developed, he never had puberty because he just was never even enough in his body or inclined to that way. He was a nagasadhu, so it was obvious to everyone. But it's just like he never even... He grew up to the size of a man, but there was never sufficient energy even for him to develop the sexual organs because there was no identification with the body to the extent to even bring that aspect to fruition. Okay, but once we're identified with the finite body, all of the vulnerabilities of that body and the temptations to pleasure and pain and the identifications, all the things that we were talking about a lot Last week, you see how they go together. So what happens to us is not so much that, you know, I want to be famous, I don't want to be not famous, I want to be rich, I don't want to be poor. It doesn't exactly work in opposites, and this is what Swami's trying to say here. Rather, we have a central thought of the need for comfort, the need to be recognized, or it it may be much more specific. You know, I was saying, we see some, we see... uh, happy couple and I'm alone and we have just this longing for human companionship. And that sort of pervasive inner desire um, creates a magnetism and it creates a vortex and a lot of energy spins around those thoughts because there's some central desire here that is uh, differentiated from the infinite. You know, instead of being completely happy with God's will, we have all of these qualifications that we've put on it. I'll give it to you in the example of the extreme opposite. Swami tells us the story, and it was a subconscious, it was a dream he had when he was asleep, but he found it very gratifying that even in his sleep, this was his response. Swamiji has made certain comments that essentially say that there are no vrittis in his chakras. He's, he he would, didn't allow me to print that in the book about him, even though that's essentially what he said. There's no subconscious. There's no difference between his waking, his sleeping. There's no um, hidden reality to him. He's all one flow, and this story is like that. In the dream, as he, some of you have heard him tell it, he said he... He dreamt that he was going to be burned at the stake. And he found in the dream that he was perfectly relaxed about the fact that he was going to be burned at the stake. And yes, he would be uncomfortable for a short period of time, but that would be so passing it wouldn't really matter. And then his body would be gone and there there would be no pain after he died. And he said in the peculiar way of dreams, 
he was tied to the stake and they were getting ready to burn him and his enemies who had arranged for him to be burned were just sort of right next to him in the same room and they were all having a banquet. And they were all feasting together and, you know, these were all the people who hated him enough to want to kill him in this dream. He didn't bother to identify who they might be. They were just his enemies and he was over here being burned at the stake and he was perfectly relaxed in the dream, just not at all agitated, and it was fine that they were enjoying themselves. Why not? You know, it wasn't up to him. And then just as the fire was starting, all of a sudden he was rescued. You know, his friends found him, and they snuffed out the fire, and they freed him from the stake. He found himself as equally relaxed at being rescued as he was at being burned at the stake. You know, equally happy to see his friends, equally indifferent to the presence of his enemies. Now, that's a a pretty big dream. And he presented it um, as a true reflection of his consciousness, which is what I was saying in another context. He just mentioned to me, he said, essentially that his dreams are no different than his waking life. There's nothing that, you know, most of us have a sort of guard against a lot of subconscious feelings, and then sometimes when the conscious mind goes to sleep, those subconscious feelings come up. But he, he's not found in his life that there's any, any barriers. Everything is clear. So, okay, for most of us, we have a center point of, well, let's start with something simple. You know, physical pain is really unpleasant, and being burned at the stake is really not a very, um, not something that we can accept with equanimity because our infinite self is deeply identified with our finite, with the attachment to the body, with the fear of what might happen to it, with the sensations that come through it, with the desire not to be in the presence of our enemies, to be under the power of people who, who are evil. I mean, we can make a huge long list. And all of that is, is, a, it is, a, is an undifferentiated point around which a whole lot of energy revolves. It revolves all the time. I mean, most of us don't walk around worrying about being burned at the stake. But many of us have deeply held subconscious anxiety about what might happen to the body and the possibility of physical pain. Isn't that true? Um, Swami Kriyananda for years has been telling us about how when he goes to the dentist, he doesn't take Novocaine. And he tells us, you know, he tells us sometimes in far more detail than we want to know (laughs) about the gory experiences he has and how nervous the dentists are and how calm he is about it. And I mean, one extricating some tooth and holding up the nerve and... Uh, just to sort of show us how bad it can be. I mean, I just think, why are you always telling us this? And when I had to write it up in my book about Swamiji, it became so obvious to me because all of us carry that center vortex of anxiety about physical pain. We're all carrying it. Almost everyone is carrying it. And And how many opportunities do we have, really, to just face into that fear? I mean, sometimes... Life forces it upon us by accident, injury, or illness, and all of a sudden we get to find out, or imprisonment or abuse or things that we would not have sought, but we get the opportunity to try to break free of that vritti of anxiety about physical pain. Swamiji says, why hide from it? Why not just go right out and seek it? I I can't at all. I can't even contemplate it, even just... The smallest dental thing makes me very uneasy. I try hard to be brave, but the idea of not 
not taking Novocaine when I, I just couldn't even go there. And what can I say? It's just <laughs> the many ways in which I look different than Swami Kriyananda, <laughs> which is why I have a lot of respect for what he says and does. Because when you really stop and think about that and really compare that, all it says quite simply is, well, we have a lot of vrittis. Yoga is the neutralization of all these vrittis. And it's a feeling. It's a fear. It's an anxiety about that experience. It's not a neutral idea. It's not a theoretical idea. It's an absolute, deeply held, visceral point of view. Just one more about Swami, which he's mentioned this several times, but every so often I... I, I think it's really worth thinking about these things, not to frighten ourselves. There's no in, intention here to frighten us. But I think it's very important for us to be realistic about the path we're on and what's, what's going to be required of us. And just calmly look at it with enthusiasm, but humility, recognizing we have a ways to go. Swamiji said when they operated on when they replaced his hip, he had, he, even though he has two hips, he actually had three operations because one of them had to be done twice. So I'm not sure which one this was. But he, he, he really does not like to take a general anesthesia, so he persuaded them to do it with just a spinal because it was below the waist. But he said that the anesthesia wore off before the operation was finished. I mean, for the average person, this is about as close to hell as you can imagine. They were still sewing him up when, when he began to be able to feel it. He said later on when the anesthetologist came in and asked him to wiggle his feet, the fact that he, he was able to, so com- he was so completely free of the anesthesia, the anesthetologist realized that it had worn off during the operation because he understood it. And he said he sort of staggered against the wall. I mean, it's, you know, at the very least, it's a malpractice suit, but you know, Swami never even considered it. But not only did Swami have to endure that, but he said he knew, if they knew, that the local, the uh, spinal had worn off, they would have immediately put him completely under. And he just says, and I didn't really want that. I don't like to be made unconscious. So he, he had to not only endure it, he had to endure it without flinching, without giving the slightest indication that that was what was happening. Now, I mean, I think it's, it frightens me too, but I think it's really just wonderful to contemplate, even just to imagine it. And then we practice with little things. You know, you smash your finger in a drawer, you stub your toe. Just how much am I going to react to this? And, and it's very good practice to train yourself not to cry out when something sudden happens. I'm always real proud of myself if, if I have a sudden injury of which, by the grace of God, I've had very few. But even, you know, you stub a toe or twist a finger, it's painful. And to not cry out, not to make a a big moment about it, but just, oh, look at this. Just, oh, look, you know, here I am. I mean, by contrast, I dropped a piece of wood on my foot once when we lived in a house with a wood stove, and it was in the evening, and I was all alone. There was no one there. And I actually wasn't certain whether I'd broken my foot or my toe. And so I called the medical clinic. This was at Ananda Village. I got Jack Wallace on the phone. He was wonderful. And so we had a little discussion about, and he, he knew enough to just run me through what I needed to run through to find out if a bone was likely to be broken. We ascertained that it was not likely. And then I said, Jack, 
I want someone to feel sorry for me. <laughs> and he was so adorable. Oh, Asha, your poor foot, you know. And we spent a little time on the phone, and he just really laid it on with a trowel, and I accepted it completely. And then we both went on with our lives, you know. But, I mean, it partly, um, one exaggerates attitudes in order to emphasize to yourself really what the right attitude would be. By making a mockery of the wrong attitude, then at least you're sort of working in whatever way you can work. Because, well, there, I mean, I'm just using it as one vritti, which is fear of physical pain and concern about the body. How many people are afraid of growing old and therefore becoming dependent on others and not being able to take care of themselves? How much of that just sort of runs as a thought form that's going on all the time? When I was in India on this last trip, um, this last trip, this only trip, um, I had an interview by... Uh, somebody from the uh, Times of India, and the, she, the, they just made up a subject. They wanted to talk about fear. And I said, okay, whatever you want. And she told me ahead of time that she wanted me to talk about fear at four stages of life. The fear of the student of not succeeding, um, the fear of the career woman, this is a sort of mostly for a woman's audience, the fear of the career woman, that she's not really going to be successful in her work, the fear of the young married person, you know, that her husband might wander or that she might be left alone or you know, that kind of that thought form that the marriage is not going to be fulfilling, and then the fear of the old person that they're going to be dependent on others. Wow. I mean, I had to spend quite a little bit of time Fortunately, she told me in advance, and I was able to come up with answers. She found her reasonable, and she wrote a pretty good article about it. But the last one, the fear of growing elderly and other people are going to have to take care of you, I said, you can't really deal with that in any way that is... I mean, how are you going to deal with that? Well, I mean, I suppose you can, and people do, save their money, work hard to make sure they have lots of money, buy big retirement insurance, just to make absolutely certain that no one will ever have to lift a finger to take care of them or that they'll never be dependent on anyone? My answer to her was um, several fold. One is, first of all, if you're a generous-hearted person and like to give to others, why would you assume that no one else would find joy in also giving to you? So the first is like a whole world view. And the second is, I mean, it's not that you're buying people's obligation to you, but the more joyously you give to others and the more you identify with the greater reality, the more that becomes your vibration. And the more taking care of you... I mean, taking care of you is only a burden if you're really a pill to be around, you know? (laughs) That's what makes it a burden. If you're a loving, generous, giving person, people are eager to be around you, even well into old age. But you see, here we have the vritti. So how do we deal with that? And all of these vrittis are the infinite identified with the finite and our capacity to surrender without resistance to what the flow of life brings us and to experience in whatever that flow is the sameness of the divine reality. Instead, we have the world divided up, divided up, divided up, 
I want this, I need that, I like this, I reject that. And the whole spiritual path is to get over all of these things. And the whole fact of karma coming to us, what which we call good and bad, it comes to us because it's, it's attempting to dissolve whatever this central reality is. Because whatever that central thought is, is what makes everything else spin around it. If we, if we lose that central fear, oh, I'm completely content on my own. You know, solitude is uh, the price of greatness, the freedom of, you know, the creative potential of celibacy and the enormous karmic freedom of not being intermeshed with anybody else's destiny. Suddenly a person realizes that's just, that's no burden. That's absolutely wonderful. Or just the realization that physical pain is really a minor part of reality. It's just not something that we have to think about. God sends it to me. He'll send me the power to endure it. But until we can dissolve those center issues, so many other decisions are all made around them. And our energy, instead of flowing in one-pointed freedom to the infinite, just constantly spins like this. And this is... This is the pattern of what the chakras are. The pattern of the chakras is all these different vrittis at whatever level in the spine they vibrate. The spine from the bottom to the top, so to speak, represents the degree of our identification with the finite. And of course, it's, it's directional. Um, we have Uh, inclinations toward the divine, a degree of faith in God, a degree of experience, and we start building strong vortices around really nice thoughts, you know, like I I am a devotee of a great guru and I serve that guru. And therefore, all these other realities come. I remember when I was um, still living at Ananda Village when I was single, um, I was living in this very small trailer, and I'd lived in that small trailer for a really long time, and I loved it. And then one day, it just occurred to me, actually, that it wasn't good for me to live in that space anymore. It just crossed my mind. It never crossed my mind before. Actually, by then, I was in a slightly larger trailer. But it just crossed my mind that this wasn't, was not an expansive spiritual situation for me. It came unbidden. It was an odd idea. I wasn't really even discontent. It just crossed my mind that this was not a good situation for me. Of course, the reason I lived that way is because the work that I was doing gave me exactly as much money as I needed to buy propane to heat my trailer or wood to heat it, in that case, and as much food as I needed to eat for 30 days. And that was just about how much money I had, or in fact, just slightly less than that. So fortunately, my birthday and Christmas are on opposite sides of the year, so I would generally be rescued. And <laughs> there was one man at Ananda Village who seemed to have more income, who always seemed to sense when I was out of money. And whenever, I mean, I never said a word to him, but whenever I was out of money, he just would always just kind of slip me $100 or something like that. So God always took care of me. But I was sitting there. I was a young woman with lots of ability, and It would have taken nothing for me to get a job, to make lots of money. I could have earned easily anything I wanted and, you know, made made any kind of living situation easily. At least I felt that I could. But even though 
I didn't like my house, and it didn't, it wasn't even more than that, it wasn't even that I didn't like it, it didn't feel right. My dharma was to serve Master and to build Swami's work. And for me to have walked away from that in order to do this was impossible. I mean, this was a, a vritti. It was indeed a vritti, and it was a very strong vritti. There was just no way I could walk away from that. I couldn't do it. And, uh, but this was also true. So I just sort of had to like watch the two vrittis. And I said to Master, you're a problem. And one year later, and I had a picture of where I should live. It should have light, and I had this picture of prism light on the wall. I saw this color. It should have white walls. It should be expansive. One year later, I was living there. <laughs> you know, I, I married David. We moved into this house. I woke up one morning, and I thought, oh, my God, this is it. It wasn't our house. It was Honnell's Dome. But we were, I just woke up, and I realized, oh, look at this. I, didn't, know, I, didn't, I was, didn't even know how it happened. It just sort of happened, one step after another, and then there I was. Um, so not all vrittis are bad vrittis. Sometimes you have to hold strong. I just held strong to it. I, I saw this one, but I wasn't going to create any more energy around it because it just wasn't, even though I felt it was a God-inspired idea, I couldn't. So it just sat there with just a little tiny bit of energy around it, but enough, apparently, to draw it to me. But sometimes a person will feel, and I was sort of saying this to you, Ed, when someone will feel that, you know, this is just something I really have to do. I have to build a house. I have to have this situation. I need to raise these children. I need to have an experience of a certain kind. But as long as energy is swirling around a thought that is anything except your love for God, then to that extent, energy will go here and not here. And so yoga is the neutralization, the dissolution of all these other vrittis. Because as soon as all these other vrittis are dissolved, our energy automatically goes to the infinite. You see, we keep it from going to the infinite. We don't have to make it go to the infinite. You see the difference? The difference is everything. All of these is what keeps it from flowing. This is just what I was saying last week about Shankya. It's because we still think that our true fulfillment is going to lie here, 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 and here. And that what we create then is we create a vritti. And when we no longer really believe that, then the vrittis are automatically dissolved and the, um, the river flows to the sea. You can't stop it. Let's take a break, okay? All right, are we set? Okay, is everyone set? Do we have any questions or comments about anything that was discussed in the first half of the class? Okay, the microphone's right next to you, Tom. Those four phrases, for I want, I like, I need, I reject, I'm assuming he used those on purpose. Is he saying that those four things sum it all up, or is that just some examples of I, this, that, and the other thing? I think that they, he doesn't make a big point of it. He just, he just writes it out. Uh, swirl and eddies around the thoughts, I want, I like, I need, I reject. I think he pretty much gets it. Don't you think it gets it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Well, I mean, he, he, it's not like he just, you know, he wrote it. He wrote it on purpose. 
Oh, yeah. He, well, but the whole book came to him as an inspiration, so I'm sure. But when you stop and analyze it, you could make the list longer, but you would not necessarily be adding anything to it. Yeah. That's where longing and regret, just those two just get it right away. I want, I need. Want and need are two different things. Because he's implying there also, even what we think of as our needs are um, quite different. I've been reading, actually listening to it as an audio book, a, a really interesting book, it's, and which many of you may already know about. It's called Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And now it's some 60 or 70 years old. Viktor Frankl was a, a German psychiatrist who in his early 20s as a Jew in Germany was arrested and taken to a concentration camp. I don't think he lived, he lived a year or two in the concentration camp. It was, he, he didn't have, but it was long enough. And he, he lived through it, although his family, all, all but his one sister, I mean, all his family was killed, his wife and her family. And then he became a psychiatrist and he came up with a form of psychotherapy that was based on the meaning of our experiences. And he said, you know, suffering is, anything can be endured if we understand the meaning of it, as to to what the purpose is. And he writes, he doesn't write from a religious point of view. He doesn't bring God into the discussion except every so often referring to people of faith. But it's not, he doesn't make his understanding based on that. Although I suspect he himself has a highly spiritual nature. You feel that. But what he talks about, without coming at it from this angle, because he's a German psychiatrist, um, he talked about how he tells the story of being in the concentration camp as an illustration of the most extreme that we can imagine. Because, you know, being Jewish, from a Jewish family, born in 1947, this is always something I think about. And uh, because I have... I have a fear of being imprisoned and of, of being in pain and of being in those circumstances. You know, it, and it's, it's, a, it's not as profound an undercurrent as it used to be, but it's, it's, it's still a little bit in there. You know, this is one of my ways of approaching it. I can't not take Novocaine, but I read or hear stories of extreme circumstances and I try to, at least in theory, brace myself for those experiences. Um, but he talked about how when they were first arrested, how they were, every, every physical thing was taken from them, every piece of jewelry, every, absolutely everything. And then he said every hair on their body was shaved off. Who knows why? But just, and he said, so they were, he said all they had, and he said in the most extreme sense, was our naked lives, is how he described it. This whole group of people, all of whom were completely traumatized because, of course, this all had happened to them very quickly, even though if you'd been watching, you could see that it was coming. But nonetheless, they had been pulled very recently out of their lives and brought to this circumstance. Just standing there stark naked without a hair on your body with absolutely everything taken away from you and all you have left, he said, you're reduced to your naked life. And then he he just talked about the experience of recognizing that the one thing that no one can ever take away from you is your freedom to choose your response to the circumstances of your life. He said absolutely everything else could be taken from you, but there was no power on earth that could take away from you your ability to choose your response. 
and then everything that he talks about builds from there. And, and he talks about the noble, the, the opportunity to build no, an, an inner nobility that the circumstances gave them and whether or not they were able to rise to that. And, and that's what it came down to. That's the search for meaning. I mean, very, very profound. And at least for me, and I've, I've read this book, I've read this book many times. It's the first time I've listened to it. I started reading this book many, 40 years ago. Um, it, it, it helps. It really helps to, to be able to really contemplate that and realize you don't have to be in a concentration camp for that to be true. Just in, in every circumstance, I mean, it's pure Patanjali is what it is because truth is the same no matter how you find it, which is why there was so much power in it for him. So he doesn't use the word vrittis and chakras or anything like that, but he knew it. He knew right then that all you had, all you had was consciousness and freedom of consciousness, period. That was, that was simply all there was to it. Very fascinating. And just how people just thrived or didn't, had power or didn't, all depending on how much they could hold that. And then he, he talks just a whole lot of other things. But, and what Swami says in here is he talks about the battle of Kurukshetra, which is what the Gita is all about. You know, it takes place on the battlefield. Swami's drawing the different scriptures together. And this, the battle of Kurukshetra, the story of the Gita, is the Pandavas and the Kauravas, the upward-moving potential and the downward-moving potential. And Swamiji says, um, if we would find God, we must direct all our energies and tendencies in one direction. He says that everyone feeling that conflict, he said Freud counseled people to go with their lower tendencies, to give in, especially, he said, to the sex instinct, saying that we would never be at peace as long as we are at war with ourselves. But Swamiji says the problem is that we will never be at peace until we surrender to our true nature, which is God, because all of the uh, identification with the finite is just temporary. And it's simply, it's not that it's sinful or evil, it's just that it doesn't work. I mean, it's just as simple as that. Yes, Nishikama. Uh, Victor Frankl's story is reminiscent of uh, Jaya's answer when people asked him whether he'd acquired any um, spiritual powers in all these years. And he thought for a while and he said, yes, one, I've, uh, I, I always have the ability to choose happiness under any circumstance. Yeah, it's exactly right, choosing happiness. And that says everything. Yeah, how, how much that could be challenged and how much we could hold to it is... I mean, see, this again, this is the question of good or bad. What is bad about being given the opportunity to choose happiness no matter what your circumstances? Why would we call that bad? We call that bad because we have all these I want, I like, I need, I reject. But once we no longer are running our lives according to those concepts, all we're doing is in all circumstances choosing happiness. And if we want to be able to always choose happiness, we naturally have to train in order to be able to do that. We can't just choose happiness when nothing challenges our happiness. And is it good if nothing challenges our happiness? But here then he talks about just even, you know, in the most fundamental way, I mean, those things which people think are absolutely right and natural. 
And this is the really delicate balancing point um, on the spiritual path, which I, we have to always find a way. We have to come to really solid peace with this fact, which is that I have a long way to go and it doesn't make any difference. There's nothing wrong with me. And, and I have a long way to go and I don't have any distance to go. That there are just so many things. And this is where Swami writes, he says... Uh, that um, yoga is the neutralization of every one of those little vortices. And then he quotes Master saying, every desire must be neutralized. And then Swami responds, every single desire, even little desires, such as for an ice cream cone. And Master says, oh, yes. And even Swami says, he replied emphatically. You know, every time there's a little vortex of energy, builds up, a little vritti gets started, to that extent the energy does not flow unimpeded. It circles around whatever that little vortex is. But then Swami balances it by when he said to Master, he became concerned, help me to overcome my desire for good food. Nowadays Swami puts it simple. I'm a finicky eater, I'll admit it. He says like that. And then Master says, oh, don't bother about those little things. When ecstasy comes, everything goes. And what he means is, when the floodgates open and the heart soars toward the divine, just like a strongly flowing river just draws all the eddies into it, so it is if we just concentrate on devotion, then everything else becomes unattractive by contrast. And that's where um, Swamiji, I remember, was talking, was, he was actually talking to Sant Kishavadas. They were having lunch together and they were talking about everybody's little food fetishes and diets and you know in in ashrams especially in those days lots of lots of little things would go through and they were and master said swamiji said he was talking about master he said this age is too gross meaning um um the vibrations of early dwapara are not that subtle yet he said you you can you you cannot escape the bondage of this world merely by purifying the body because the, the material vibrations are, are grosser than that. He said in a very highly elevated age, a much higher age, Swami was saying, where the material vibrations are much thinner, you know, just a little bit of purification on the physical plane and you can free yourself. In this age, and they were saying one to another, devotion is the path. And that's what Master brought. He brought a very heart-centered, divine mother-oriented, chanting is half the battle, prayer. Even, even though he emphasizes the Kriya technique, you know, all around the Kriya technique are an enormous number of devotional practices. And even the way we teach Kriya, it's about being a disciple. It's about offering your energy up into the divine we make a, a, a very big point of the involvement of your feelings and of your heart in the practice because in this age, devotion is the way to go because we need to just create a strong flow of energy that everything else is drawn into it. And not even austerities. You know, our path does not really strongly emphasize austerities. We don't sort of focus on, I'm going to reject this and reject that. And even this Nayaswami order moving us in a wholly different understanding even of renunciation. This is all devotion is the path. 
When ecstasy comes, everything goes. So even though we're talking about the neutralization of these vrittis, the best way to neutralize them is to create something more attractive. You know, even in the little story that I was telling you about having this desire for a different kind of a home and to live a little differently or the feeling that that's what I needed, but devotion to service and to God and Guru, um, first, first vritti, first priority, and then follow the main event and everything else will come in under it. And that's what we're all finding. And of course, our Kriya practice itself is the primary practice for the fulfillment of this sutra because the Kriya practice itself increases the flow of the river of devotion and of dedication through the center of the spine, and then all the vrittis are automatically drawn into it. So Kriya, per se, is, is the method, is the yoga method for fulfilling this. Um, let me think what... Oh, yes. I know one, one last thought here before. Is there any questions or comments before I go on? Yes, Arthur has a question. I just wanted to understand um, how or why the desire to serve God and Guru is a vritti. How or why what? The desire to serve God and Guru is a vritti in itself. Because it's a, it's a, how is the desire for God and Guru a vritti in itself? Uh, for ex- I'm just. Because we're, we're still doing battle. We're not, we're not free. There's a downward pulling energy, so there has to be a, a compensating upward pulling energy that we have to commit our energy to it. We have to discipline ourselves to it. We have to constantly cultivate and remind ourselves of that. There'll be a time when there'll be no, when all the downward pulling energy is gone and then there's nothing to resist. Everything, the whole river flows into the sea. But until that time is there, there has, we're, we're countering the opposite energy. We're, we're still in the battle of Kurukshetra. We're Arjuna and Yudhishthira and Bhima and we're fighting the battle. And that's where we have to keep that thought strong. We can't just do nothing. Because if you do nothing, the downward pulling energy will just suck you down. So you have to create an upward moving energy. But it's, it, it draws the lesser desires into itself, becomes stronger and stronger until we're freed completely. Yeah. Uh-huh. So should you should one accept that there's uh, ego investment into that? But it's an ego dissolving desire. So it, it's a trick of the mind to think that they're both equal. Oh well, I shouldn't really want God either. Of course, you have to want God because you want a million other things, and you have to posit a counterforce to it. Our our desire for God is not automatic or effortless at this point, because if we don't concentrate with a great deal of dedication and disciplined force on that. See, that was Arjuna. Why should I fight this battle? I mean, what's the point? Krishna says, well, if you don't, your kingdom will be taken over by the Kauravas. And that's really what we have to realize, is that we are in a war, and we will remain in a war for a long time. And therefore, we must train and we must fight. And that's what the Gita is about. And unless you understand that with real dedication, that, and this is where Swami goes on to say, even in samadhi, there are two kinds of samadhi. You can just even have just sabakalpa samadhi, but if you, if you take that realization to yourself, you'll fall again. And he speaks of his own incarnations where he 
feels that he attained that state of consciousness, but he fell from it. And that it's a common thing. It's not an uncommon thing to fall from it. So even when you've had that much experience, still you have to be constantly vigilant on it. So it's... um, what was I going to say? That, duality, that Maya is always lurking. And, and people who try to be on the spiritual path and talk themselves out of being very intense about it because even the desire for God is a desire. It's just an intellectual game. Just like when Arjuna says to Krishna, I don't really want to fight this battle. And then he gives him all these reasons. And Krishna's answer in essence is, those words sound really smart, Arjuna, but that's a really, really stupid argument. He says, and then he says, you know, you're a coward, you're a fool. That's what you're really saying to me. You don't have the courage to really fight this battle, so you have it all, all worked out in your mind where you don't have to fight it anymore. And so we as devotees have to be very, very vigilant about being too smart for our own good and just talking ourselves out of common sense. No, we need to make a very powerful vritti that says, you know, I will, I will practice, I will serve, I will give, I will love, and I will build my life around this. I mean, all the energy that, that comes in around it. I was you know, just looking at my little altar area today, and um, someone was talking to me coming in about having made a little dedicated space in their home now to be their meditation area. I mean, you know, we have a vritti, we have a, a point of view in the center, and we build a vritti around it. We demonstrate by our lives. We use our time, energy, and money to show what's important to us. And we create more and more magnetism around that central thought of God-realization. If you don't create a lot of magnetism around it, you won't have much magnetism, and you'll just get sucked away. Out of a thousand who seek God, only one finds God. Out of many, many people who come to the spiritual path, not very few of them last to the end of life, because they don't build energy like this. Build a whirlpool around the thought of God. Build, suck everything into that thought. And don't worry about that one because it'll take care of itself. A desire which frees you from all desires is not a desire. It's what they call a desireless desire. But you're just playing word games <laughs> at that point. We know. Okay. Any other questions or thoughts? Oh, I, I know what I started to say. What I was going to start to say. It's a very important point to realize that the restlessness of the mind originates in the heart. It's actually the heart that is restless or agitated. I wrote this also in my book about Swamiji. I was remembering it. We talk about calming the mind when we meditate, but the mind is automatically calm if the heart is calm. It's the restlessness of the heart that makes the mind agitated. We sit to meditate, and all of a sudden we want, we need, we like, and we reject. I don't like sitting here. You know, I reject the need for this discipline. I want to have something to eat. I need to get up and move. I have to go to work. I don't really have time to do this. I need to go to sleep. Um, or we start meditating and we feel anxious about something. Something is bothering us on a deep level. Many, many years ago, I realized that what bothers me when I meditate is often the purpose of that meditation. In other words, what is uncovered within my own heart that I might not have realized was there. I'm sure all of us have experienced that. I, I did a meditation one class, and um, I, afterwards, after our first meditation or at our second class, I asked people how it was going. It was a really classic class. One person said they started to meditate, and they became nervous that they weren't doing it correctly. 
One person said they tried to meditate and they, they suddenly just felt absolutely as sleepy as they could possibly be. They couldn't stay awake at all. One said they discovered they had terrible back pains. Another one said as soon as they sat to meditate, they became very angry about, just angry. Another one said as soon as she began to meditate, she began to cry. I mean, all of them were just telling, them, telling us what the restless vibrations of the heart were and as soon as they tried to calm, calmly concentrate on a single point, reason follows feeling. All those restless feelings in the heart began to make the mind impossible to keep focused. It was constantly being pulled off by these vrittis. Vrittis are the waves of feeling. They're not just ideas. They're the passion we have about the things in our life. They're not impersonal. A feeling is when we are really captured by maya because feeling is I want, I like, I need, I reject. And so we have to constantly be working and that's why blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says, for they shall see God. Because when the heart is no longer pulling in all these different directions, then the energy is free to rise to the spiritual eye. So we we carry just these enormous karmic vrittis, and we have to be working at all times to calm our feelings, to calm our reactions, to calm our responses. And even today I was remembering um, a few years ago, many years ago, when I was had this karmic conflict with someone and we began to get past life recollections and verifications of what the basis of our antagonism was, which was enormous. It's an enormous antagonism and we both developed very sound, objective, past-life stories about why we were justified in our feelings toward one another. Um, and, you know, I was, I'd been pretty bad, and so had the other person. There was no question about it. And we were really, you know, getting into it solidly. And Swamiji sat us down, and he just looked at us, and he said, basically, the past is not revealed to you so that you can allow it to rule the present and the future. The past is revealed to you so you can let it go. And then he pointed out, it's the past. It's not happening now. It's just the grudge you're carrying for events long past, literally centuries ago. He said, it's, it's not the present. And we have to be very careful because we get in touch with this thing that happened to me and that thing that happened to me and the way I've always felt about this and the anxiety I carry about that. And we imagine... That somehow that justifies us. All we're describing is what's at the center and what we've built up around it. You know, I am a person, I always was afraid of going to a concentration camp. God knows why. I'm less afraid of it now than I used to be. You know, I've been a person who's been incredibly, just using myself, attached to my ideas about things. Ideas to me with my Gemini horoscope are more important to me than anything. And I become very intent when people don't agree with my ideas. I mean, it's just the person that I am. And I have all these reasons about it. But they're just air, you know? Just energy spinning in the wind. Merely because we can identify a vritti, that doesn't mean that we're justified in keeping it. It means, why would I want to keep on feeling this way? Now, that's the battle. That's the battle of Kurukshetra. Do I just want to keep on feeling this way and just sort of let this thing run for another million incarnations or so? You know, is it worth it to me? It's 
Swamiji tells the story of having a dream about a man who was a very close friend. This was just a dream. It wasn't, well, I'm sure it was a past life, but he never really identified it with anyone. That he was really close with this friend in, the, in this dream that he was having. And then they had antagonism and his friend betrayed him. And then in the next life, Swami had the opportunity to betray him. And then in the next life, the friend had the opportunity to betray Swami again. And then Swami, and at a certain point, he said, enough. You know, I don't, we don't need to do this forever. I, I, I let it go. I repudiate it. You see, you get that Vritti, he took my wife from me. He took my farm from me. You know, he took my life from me in this way. And then you see him again and you get the chance to do it. And you even incarnate so that you have the power to be able to do it. You see how the Vritti just goes and goes and goes. And then at some point you say, you know what? It's not worth it to me. And then eventually, the vritti that holds the ego, the infinite, to the finite, it's just not worth it to me. You see? Now, it's a very high state of consciousness, but that's where we're going. And we have Kriya. We have a master. We have Patanjali. We have the Gita. We can get there. Absolutely. Not a chance in the world that we'll fail. Just a question of how much we want to do other things before we before the river reaches the sea. That's Shankya, that's the Vrittis. Okay. Two sutras done. Any other questions or thoughts before we call it a night? Huh. All right, we'll go on from there then. <laughs>